the biggest thing you can do to help your diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts is make them measurable, make them accountable. When is it easy to cut programming when it's just kind of an add-on, right? But when I think about you know, what are your workforce goals, let's start with that pillar, all the way from entry level to the board. Like, how are you thinking about, are you representing the communities in which you operate in? Succession planning, sponsorship, all of that. Build an inclusion ecosystem, like I call it, and make sure that there are goals along the way and embed them into the business because inclusion is a driver of the business. And if you don't believe that, I believe you will be left behind in the next five to 10 years. That was co-host of the Brown Table Talk podcast and author of Reimagine Inclusion, 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace, Vita Malik. And in this episode, Vita and I sat down to talk about the current state of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging efforts, particularly here in the United States. We discussed the origin story of Brown Table Talk and how she and Dee got together to create that podcast. And we explore her new book, Reimagine Inclusion. And the book is fantastic. It breaks down 13 myths that we often hear in the space of DEIB and basically breaking them and helping you reframe how to think about these topics. So we'll be right back with that conversation right now. All right, let's say you're a company looking for a strategic partnership to help you transform your people operations. You know you've got dozens of options out there, but here's why Amplify is the best one. Amplify consults and advises on what it takes to build modern people teams, from the kickoff to weekly update meetings to interview coordination and every step in between. This helps them clearly understand your work style, culture, and needs so they can be a deeply informed advisor throughout the engagement. And they understand the complexity and profile of a modern people executive because they're embedded in that world. Founder Lars Schmidt has spent over 20 years working alongside chief human resources officers, building next generation HR programs and working with companies like Forbes and Fast Company. These days, with everything moving at lightning speed, nothing is more important than clarity and simplicity. Cut through all the noise with Amplify. Hey everyone, welcome to the Redefining Work podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Mita Malik. Mita and I are both in some common networking groups. We've known each other for a few years now, but I'm really excited to dig into her new book, to share it with all of you, and to talk about her work as co-host of Brown Table Talk and her upcoming book, Reimagine Inclusion. So, Mita, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, I'd love to have you start off with just a, a brief intro for the audience. Thanks so much for having me. We know so many people in common, and I'm really excited to be having this conversation with you here today. What can I tell you about myself? I'm a passionate storyteller. I'm a business leader. I'm a diversity, equity, and inclusion champion. And most importantly, I am mom to Jay, who is 10 going on 20, Priya, who's eight going on 18. So I am welcome to any unsolicited parenting advice that anyone wants to send me. Yeah. If you can CC up, yeah, that advice as well. I'm uh, I'm, I'm a little behind you. I've got two daughters, nine and seven, uh, but also going on uh, much higher ages somehow. So, um, well, I mean, I want to jump right in. There's a lot I want to cover with you, but I want to just kind of start with just your, your view today on the state of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Um, And I think, you know, we're recording this not long after the Supreme Court, you know, rolled back affirmative action, there's lots of 
um, seemingly politicized, you know, backlash against DEIB efforts. Florida is a disaster. Uh, and I just want to kind of start with just like level setting from you. Obviously, you know, you've dedicated your career to this space. Like, what are your views on, on where we are today? How do you describe it? I think the backlash is here to stay. I am a half glass full person. I always joke my husband's half glass empty. We make a good pair. But I do this hope I do this work because I am hopeful and optimistic, Lars, that the world of work will be different for our children. And that's why I do this work. I don't want any of our children to have the experiences I had. But look at the state of the US right now. We have, according to the last Census Bureau data a few years ago, 40% of Americans identify as a race other than white. That number will quickly change in the next 10 years. Yeah. We have over $5 trillion of spending power with the multicultural consumer alone. That's not including the LGBTQ plus community, individuals with disabilities, veterans, all these dimensions of diversity. And so the demographics of this con country continue to change. And many of those individuals from historically marginalized communities, they're employees in our organizations. And they expect to be treated fairly and equitably. And they have certain expectations of their employers. And so this push-pull, I think, will be in the market now forever. I don't think it's going away. You see what's happened in Florida, as you mentioned, in Texas, the Supreme Court. You also see what's interesting. You see states like Florida and Texas passing laws that are now banning, making it illegal to have diversity, equity, inclusion programming in some of their public educational institutions. They've also banned books. And it's interesting that some companies have mirrored that as well. Coinbase, Basecamp, both famously said, we will not talk about politics. We're not talking about social justice issues or activisms, activism and work. And they had, you know, at least in one case, one of the companies had 30% 30, 30 attrition, yeah, right? 30% of people right? left that week, yeah. right? After the founders announced. So people will choose to work where they want. We have a choice. And if I have a perception that this organization doesn't align with my values or what I believe in, I will make a different choice. Yeah. Well, how, I mean, so for HR practitioners that are watching, right. And, and for me, it's like, and I realize that this, this march towards, you know, equity and social justice is generational, right. It's, it's, it's movements and, and movements. And I feel like we've had, you know, moments over the last couple of years where, especially in HR, We've made some progress, you know, definitely not as much as we need to be, but, you know, it feels like a bit of progress. And now we're kind of in this new moment, where, as you mentioned, Florida, Texas Supreme Court, there's backlash, you know, 13 AGs signed off on the letter to Fortune 100 companies saying that they'll be going after them um, for DEIB programs. It leaves HR practitioners, I think, in maybe this kind of grayish area where if they're committed to this work and they want to continue moving this forward, um, but perhaps they don't understand, you know, from a legal perspective, right? Like, I don't know if we've heard that much, um, yet from like the, uh, uh, the equal employment opportunity organization and other, other places like that, like what recommendations and what advice do you have, you know, for those leaders who are watching and they're viewing, and again, they, they, they themselves are committed to this work. They don't really understand the, the kind of, uh, potential legal implications of, you know, driving DEIB programs within their companies? Well, at the time, at this moment, as we're having this conversation, things change very rapidly. The EOC has said that the ruling from the Supreme Court justice does not directly impact workplaces. We also know that it doesn't, it doesn't. Legally, it might not, right? But 
there is fear, there's uncertainty. What does this mean for my workplace? I think now's not the time to back down. Because here's the thing, if you back down now, if you decide to dismantle your DEI efforts, if you decide to let your chief diversity officer go, if you decide to cancel your supplier diversity programming, you get rid of your diversity sourcers, diversity recruiters, you will be left behind, right? You will be left behind because if you have done all this work and today you say, I'm just going to erase it, I'm scared, we're not going to do this anymore, where will you be in 10 years? And so to your point, if you are uncertain, you need to be educated. I always say, Lars, there's no such thing as experts anymore. I'm not an expert. I just have deep expertise. And so I've also had to educate myself and talk to outside counsel and understand what this might mean for my company or other companies. And so do that. But when I talk about my book, Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace, the thing that I always go back to is what does inclusion mean? Like, let's start there. What does inclusion mean? Inclusion means that I feel valued, seen, recognized. My voice matters here and my work matters here. And that is the biggest retention tool we have right now. Because if you can provide me that at your organization, someone else comes around, offers me $20,000, $30,000 more. Honestly, that's not worth it to me. Because what I have here is so amazing. Yeah. Maybe a hundred thousand, right? Yeah, I know. Joking. But maybe. <laughs> There's but, a you number know, like, eventually. Is, yeah. Let's go back to like what inclusion is about. Yeah. Right. It's making sure we all feel valued in our workplace. Because what am I going to do spending all this time at work when I feel devalued? Like, why would I stay? And so let's get back to why we do this work. And really, when I feel included on your team, Lars, you have not just unlocked the potential of the company, but you've unlocked my potential. That's why you hired me. And so if we can go back to why we're doing this work, that's what's really important. Go back to why you're doing this work before you decide to cancel it. I think you raised such a good point on, you know, obviously we've seen some of the numbers around chief diversity officer turnover over the last, you know, six months, even three months. Um, and I think, you know, these programs, these initiatives, they, they take time to build, they take time to nurture and to, you know, kind of have results for the organization. And this is so short-sighted for me in, in this initial perhaps pushback that companies are going to pull the plug because, it's going to leave them behind. You're right. Um, you know, this, the, the country is not getting less diverse and representative. It's getting more. And so it's going to leave them behind. And then they're going to have to come back to this at some point and, you know, they're going to have to try to stand it up all over again. And that's going to be a much difficult, more difficult place for them to be in. So if we're talking to HR practitioners right now and HR leaders, if you're listening, Many chief diversity officers sit in HR. Some of them sit on the C-suite. They're reporting the CEO, sometimes reporting the CHRO. The biggest thing you can do to help your diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts is make them measurable, make them accountable. When is it easy to cut programming when it's just kind of an add-on, right? But when I think about you know, what are your workforce goals, let's start with that pillar, all the way from entry level to the board. Like, how are you thinking about, are you representing the communities in which you operate in? succession planning, sponsorship, all of that. The second is products and services. How are, how's your brand showing up in the marketplace? Who's com what communities are you talking to and, and which communities are you ignoring and why? The third is supplier diversity. You know, I've worked for a lot of big public companies, Lars, and it's like we write the same several million dollar check to the same supplier, to the same vendor, the same people making the commercials. And you're like, huh, why? Like that's a, that's a huge power and impact if we actually look to create more wealth with small business owners, right? And then the fourth, which we're getting into is the values, right? Like you can put an item right now, put something on Instagram. 
have a nice little quote. And the question is, is my company really going to stand up in the moments that matter? And so that's where HR practitioners, leaders can be helping is like throughout build an inclusion, inclusion ecosystem, like I call it, and make sure that there are goals along the way and embed them into the business because inclusion is a driver of the business. And if you don't believe that, I believe you will be left behind in the next five to 10 years. Well, I appreciate the framing around, you know, metrics integrating into the business, having a more holistic view of it. Because I think, again, when you look at the evolution of HR, when you go back to those kind of legacy teams, they often viewed, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. Frankly, they just framed it as diversity as this like bolt on thing that was often just connected to recruiting. It wasn't woven into the HR operating system and everything else. So it's just, I think when you look at how modern HR leaders and practitioners view the, the function and the field and the impact today, they're viewing it holistically and how it integrates into everything and not just on the recruiting side. So the HR practitioners, leaders listening are powerful advisors, powerful advisors. And so sometimes it is that point of view to say, hey, have we thought about building some goals around this? You want to authentically serve the black community. Okay, let's have some goals. What does that look like in terms of household penetration, in terms of revenue, in terms of who's represented in the content and campaigns? It, there's, there's so many things to do. Like I say, don't boil the ocean. Start with building small and measurable goals. But you have to start somewhere. Yeah. Well, and you're right to point out, like, these are business goals. These are revenue driving market expansion, customer acquisition goals um, that make the business more successful and ultimately more profitable. So they make business sense if, if you know, hopefully you can get on the, the moral sense. But even if you can't, you know, the business sense is there. So, yeah, I just I think that it's just very short sighted the way companies are perhaps having this knee jerk reaction to this moment of time that we're in right now. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about your podcast for a minute. You know, it's, it's, uh, I'd love to hear kind of the origin story. How'd you connect with D? How, how'd the podcast come together? Uh, I'd love to start there. And then, uh, you know, that may, may or may not be a segue into the book, but I definitely want to dig into the book as well, but let's kind of start with the podcast and how that came together. Well, as a parent, you might relate to this. I measure things in terms of how long my kids have been on this earth. So yeah. my daughter is eight. I met DC Marshall when I just came back from parental leave at the time. And I was looking for an executive coach for myself and my team. Then I brought her in to do some business and work, sponsored some conferences she was involved in. So we were client and vendor business relationship. Yeah. And then we just got to be friends and we would send each other late night audio messages, have late night conversations, go for dinner and just discovered all of these things that we had been through in our career. And it took the pandemic. It was right before the pandemic. We were out with the girlfriends and they said, you, the two of you should just have a podcast. You should call it Brown Table Talk. And I was like, ha, 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 that's funny. And then the pandemic happens and you start to reset and evaluate things that are important in your life. And I thought, why couldn't we do this? And so I believe I can upskill myself on anything, Lars, but I didn't want to upskill myself on the technicalities of running a podcast like you do. So we hired someone, Rich Cardona Media and his team. They've been phenomenal. But it's really the podcast is, I believe, in many ways, a love letter to my younger self of all the things I experienced in the workplace. And I wish that she had more people to talk to about it. And so we talk about the challenges women of color face, what it takes for women of color to stop surviving and start thriving in their workplaces, allies. We invite them into the conversations and myself as a brown woman, a South Asian woman, and Dee as a black woman, we come to the table to talk about some 
really, I would say honest conversations. We spill some tea. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, look, it, it, it's, you, you feel, you can see the chemistry. Like when you, when you listen, it's clear that you, the two of you have this. We like each other. <laughs> yeah. You like each other. That's, that's a healthy start for a co-host for a podcast, but, uh, you know, you can just tell, and I think that it, it invites us into stories that, you know, again, I'm a white male. So stories that I don't always have a window into, which I, I find really refreshing and, and helpful. Um, when you think back to the episodes that you've recorded, I, 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 as a podcast host, I would ask you for your favorite episode because that's not quite possible. You're like but asking like, me to pick between my children. Don't do yeah, that. I, I know, yeah, I know better, right? So I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But I feel like, you know, over the course of a, of a series, there usually is like, you know, maybe maybe more than one, but there there's a particular episode, a particular conversation, a particular moment in time in recording that you can't forget, right? It just, it's burned into your kind of psyche at that moment, and even you know, months or years later, you can remember exactly where you were in that conversation. And so, I guess with that framing, again, not a favorite episode, but maybe a, a just a a moment that stands out to you. Does anything come to mind? I think the theme that we've done a few times of having work stolen, yeah, in our workplaces, and I thought that had only happened to me. This was one of the first episodes we actually did. We self-funded the first eight episodes of the podcast. And I'll never forget the day that we self-funded we self -funded and it's going to launch. And Rich Cardona emails me and says, are you going to tell anyone you're launching? And I was like, oh, I guess I have to. We were so like, would anyone listen to this? Is it valuable? Is it relevant? And then LinkedIn came knocking and we became part of the LinkedIn Podcast Network. But one of the first episodes we did, which we have done a few times, the theme of making sure that you are paid fairly and equitably, free is canceled, not to have your work stolen, happens on LinkedIn all the time. I've been talking about that. How to make sure you get credit and give credit. And so that to me was, I thought I was alone in that experience in my career. The first time I had saw someone present my slides that I had shared and he took credit as his own. And I was like, I guess this happens or just, just happened to me. And the, the responses we got were incredible. And that's when I felt like, we were onto something, meaning that this was an experience that not enough people were talking about, what it was like to be me in the workplace. Yeah, I saw your LinkedIn post recently about <laughs> yes. that, that somebody had basically stolen your exact image. Because I, I, I love that you have a consistency around like a theme with some of your LinkedIn posts and then a message and context behind it. And obviously that resonates with your audience because you always have tons of engagement on there. So I saw the post you had about somebody basically copying and pasting, you know, your work and sharing it elsewhere. And that's, I agree with you. I think your, your point in that was that, you know, somebody commented to you, well, that means, you know, that's, that's flattery. Uh, and it's not, it's theft. It's theft. You know, yeah. And, and listen, some, somebody was like, oh, there's no idea really that's original anymore. Okay. True. And you've copied my words. So I often use quotes of other people. And I credit them, but I have a story that inspired me to share that quote. And so that's the difference. And somebody said to me recently on LinkedIn in the comments, like, oh, who do you think you are, Adam Grant? You like quote yourself and post it. And I talked about it on the podcast. Why do I do that? Because people, unfortunately, steal images and work. And that just is heartbreaking. Why would you do that? Like as much as I can, I'm human, I might forget, but I try to credit. If you shared something, I would tag you and say, this was from Lars, right? Like, why would I like cut your, like it, that to me is just wild. So yeah, I quote myself and I do that to protect my ideas. 
Yeah. Well, it's smart, but also what I like about it, I don't know if this factors into your kind of uh, calculus or not, but the visual aspect of reading the quote, the way that you frame it, I think that it, because again, LinkedIn, some people are just scrolling, right? So that, but that helps it stand out. And then you're like, oh, this, this, wow, that resonated with me. And then you can get into your comments where like you expand on it. So I think it's really smart, uh, even just from a, a social media navigation standpoint, in addition to the IP um, work. So um, I want to do a quick word association oh, little game, little game with you uh, <laughs> before we jump into reimagined inclusion. This is something that let uh, me take a I, sip know. of my tea. Okay, let's yeah, go. yeah. Please, please have your tea. Make sure you're ready. Uh, I'm going to say a word or a phrase, and I just want you to come back with the first word that comes to mind when you hear it. Okay, sound good. Here we go. All right. All right. Hope I don't get this. censored. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there's no censors here. This is okay. uh, this is a, a public podcast. Everything's right. game. So uh, we're going to start with. Future of work is now. I like that. Um, DEIB here to stay. I also like that. There's these are more than one words. I'm not. Yeah, that, that's I'm okay. Not. I, I should. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm not a phrase. A sentence. A word <laughs> okay, to a sentence. Okay. We'll, we'll expand. Uh, skills based hiring now. Uh, pay transparency. I. Very much like that. And actually, if you're if you're a creator or an aspiring creator on any level um, and you're watching this, like think, sit with that quote for a moment, because I think that there are whether it's conference organizers, uh, webinars, there's so there's there's such an industry around content in HR and there will be a lot of people that will be hitting you up to do things for free and you make your own calculus. Maybe there's there's benefits on some reason as to why you would do that. Um, but don't undervalue your, what you bring, um, to those they are coming to you to get you to contribute I love for that. that reason. So I have to shout out my friend, Lisa Hurley, who says exposure doesn't pay bills. Yeah, that's exactly right. Exposure oh, doesn't but pay bills. Yes. It's exposure. So fly yourself here. This guy like, no, no, no that, that's no. not going to happen. Um, okay. Uh, culture. Inclusive. Okay. AI. Scary. Human capital. All of us. Okay. All right. I appreciate that. I, I always close with human capital because I think that's the one buzzword. Today. Actually, there's a few buzzwords in HR that just grate at me. Human capital. What certainly is that? One. It's all of uh, us. I mean, well, that's it, me. That's you. We're, we're, yeah. we're, we are the company, right? Right. <laughs> and I think it's just like this idea that like people are capital. I mean, not that human resources is all that better, but yes. uh, yeah, that one, that one is, is difficult. Um, I want to get into your book. So your book yes. is coming out. I'd love you to share the, the release date for your book. Um, and then give us the origin story. Like, how did this book come to be? So the book is coming out October 3rd, Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. You can pre-order on Amazon right now. And the book took me four years to write. I wrote it four years ago. Let me go back to my original origin story, which is my mother has reminded me that I have been writing ever since I could pick up a crayon. I was the proud co-editor of my fifth grade elementary school newspaper. I wrote a screenplay in high school that was the equivalent of my big fat Indian wedding. I don't know where that is. Probably my mom's basement. I have to find that. But yeah, I hope I that still that. exists somewhere. Still yeah. exists. I left undergraduate degree, graduated from college and wanted to be a writer. I wrote three novels. I had an agent. She dumped me in a really unkind way over email. But I wrote three novels over the course of two years. Each time I was like really young and stubborn, someone would give me feedback and I'd be like, I'm just going to write another novel, which is what I did. I then went to graduate school, 
So I was passionate about storytelling. So I said, I'll go into marketing. I don't think I can make a writing career and have pay bills, right? Not going to pay my bills. And then I wrote a fourth novel, didn't get published at a nonfiction proposal that didn't go anywhere. And then I started this track in corporate America. I share this because I'm not an overnight success. I've been writing ever since I could write and I've wanted to be a published author for a very long time. And so four years ago, I started writing this book and I had an agent and I got all kinds of feedback, like come back to me when you have a book more like Sheryl Sandberg. There are a lot of people who look like you writing books like this. Mita's writing pops off the page. She's a masterful storyteller, but she doesn't have a following. No one's going to buy this book. And how do I know this, Lars? Because you know how some people have a rainy day folder. I have a rainy day folder. It's like the love notes people send you. So when yeah. you feel bad about yourself, you go back and look at all the nice notes. I have a rejections folder. Yeah. So I have over like 40, 50, I don't know how many rejections that I got for the book. And I have kept them all, not to feel sorry for myself, but to be like, oh, wow, like, look at how far you've come. And a friend of mine, Lan Fan, when I was at my lowest, said to me, She's the founder and CEO of Community of Seven, so go check her out on LinkedIn. She said to me, just do what you do well, which is community and conversation. And so I started the podcast, and the podcast and my LinkedIn presence actually finally landed me the book deal. The Amplify community has had such a profound impact on me. This work can be incredibly lonely, and the caliber of humans that I have met in this group is like nothing I've experienced before. I can't express how much the community supports one another, how safe I feel sharing about the challenges that I have in the role. It is truly the safest community I've ever been a part of to share and learn from other people, practitioners and professionals. One of the things I love so much about the Amplify community is having the opportunity to connect with a global group of peers, where we have the opportunity to come together, collaborate, innovate, most importantly, problem solve, and be able to just hold space for one another to support each other in the work that we're really pouring a lot of care and effort and energy into each and every week. I want to thank Amplify Academy community members, Chloe Sesta Jacobs, Noah Warder, and Balbina Knight for sharing their experiences. The Amplify Academy was built to help today's HR practitioners build the learning agility and network equity needed to thrive in today's world of work. Through our AI Learning Lab with over 500 resources, our global Slack community, and our leadership development cohorts, you'll build the capabilities and connections to drive your career forward. Ready to invest in yourself? Learn more at amplifytalent.com academy. Now, back to the show. Well, I, say, I appreciate the origin story. And I think it's interesting, like most people who will buy a book from an author who maybe they know the author, maybe they have followed them on LinkedIn or elsewhere, maybe they haven't, but they often don't get that origin story of really knowing like all of the blood, sweat and tears that goes into It is not easy. Well, book. you know, yeah. you know as well. And it's interesting because, you know, you hear these stories about like books being auctioned for people listening, right? If you, if you get an agent, you have a book, you have a proposal. And if it's like a really hot one, 
publishing houses will bid on it. Yeah. They'll be like, they'll like drive the price off. And I was like, oh, that's going to be me. So no, nobody <laughs> bid on my book. It took me four years and here I am. But you know, you don't hear that. You're right. You just see the end product and people don't realize how much work these things take. Like it did not happen overnight because you just see the glossy, here's the book cover, here's the images, the book tour. And you know, it's a lot of work. Yeah. So why inclusion? Uh, why, you know, obviously the book's titled Reimagine Inclusion at the Core. What was it uh, about inclusion that you wanted to kind of, you know, focus on that as the narrative for the book? There are a lot of great books right now on leadership, inclusion out in the marketplace. And I wanted to say the quiet parts out loud, all the myths that hold us back from making meaningful progress, sort of like the bedtime stories we tell our children and the stories we tell ourselves in our workplaces, which just aren't true and how damaging they can be. And so people say, why 13? It's because it's my lucky number. That's really it. Maybe there'll be another 13. But one of the things I've done in my career, Lars, which won't surprise you because I love to write, is I have kept career journals, which is different than a personal journal, but I've documented things that have happened in my career, processed the good and the bad. And so when I was writing this book, I went back to many of those stories. And also, I, if you follow me on LinkedIn, you'll know I can be tongue in cheek on my podcast too, with a sense of humor. And so I wanted to reach people in a different way with really sort of, I, you know, some people are calling them clickbait headlines and that's fine. Like I want people to really pay attention and reach them differently in yeah. this work. Well, and the, there's 13 myths. I want to get into a couple of them, but do sure. any, does any one myth, and I'm asking you to pick, pick favorites again, which isn't fair. You keep I, doing I, I realize, this. but like does a myth, um, maybe not a favorite, but like um, um, one of the 13 myths that, is most often, you know, used and misunderstood. Like the biggest myth, myth that you were excited to debunk in this book. Well, I was excited about all of them. And what I will say is the one that I've been getting a lot of wow feedback on that I didn't expect is the following myth. Why are you asking for a raise? Your husband makes more than enough money. And I will, hopefully people will pre-order and will read the book and read that chapter. But it basically the gist of the story is I go to a former manager to ask for a pay increase during performance review time, right? I've done my homework. I understand the points on the board, understand my role's worth in the market, understand what I'm not being paid within the band of the company, all those things. And that was his response to me because he found out what my husband did for a living. And so one of the myths I want to debunk is that white women and women of color don't negotiate. We often do negotiate and we are gaslit, minimized and dismissed. So in that chapter, I really ask people to think about their cultural connection to money and how they've been raised. Like I was told, you don't talk about money, you talk about where you live, what you drive, you talk about how much you make, like we don't talk about money. Okay. So if I've been raised culturally that way, how can I negotiate for myself at work? Am I triggered when someone on my team asks for their pay to be reviewed and why? I talk a lot about the fatherhood premium and the motherhood penalty. Um, statistically, something that has been shown time and time again. You know, my husband, for example, for every kid he, we have had together, he is seen as more ambitious, dependable, committed, and will make more. And I am a disheveled mess and I will make less. And so that's part of what the book, in that part of the book I get into. But I've been really sort of, Surprise, Lars, that women saying, yeah, that's happened to me. And some of more other stories that I won't, I'll let you all read it, but yeah, it's pretty interesting. But I also appreciate being able to talk about that because I think that again, if it's something that isn't discussed and understood, I think a lot of people can think, well, this is just me. So, you know, this is unique to me. So I, I'm, I'm carrying the weight of this 
Um, you know, but I don't necessarily know that this is actually something that is many others are experiencing as well. And, and then this, it kind of maybe gives more, um, more, you know, uh, encouraging conviction to kind of say, well, Hey, how do we change this? How do we stand up against Absolutely. this? And for the HR leaders and practitioners listening, I know most companies are doing the right thing. They're doing pay equity reviews behind the scenes. The issue is not with the reviews that are happening. The issue is with me, Mita, the individual leader whose bias shows up. And I'm the one who's deciding who's going to be paid what in terms of a bonus, in terms of a merit increase, in terms of uh, stock options, right? So even if HR is doing the right thing and setting guidelines and principles, it comes down to me as a leader. And so how do I interrupt my bias and make sure, I always say, it's not HR's job to understand or see if your team is being paid fairly and equitably. It's your job. HR can as help leader, you, but it's yeah. your job, right? It's your job yeah. to make sure people are leaving, people are coming, people are going. Do that check every quarter to see what's happening with your team and then go ask HR for help. But it's not their job. Right. And so I really challenge leaders on that. Yeah, I'm glad you do. Um, and th there's a few other myths I want to get into. Uh, sure. One is uh, myth four. Uh, and it was the idea that I'm all for hiring diverse talent as long as they're good. And look, I'm sure anybody watching who's been recruiting for a while, you've had a hiring manager say that verbatim. Yes. And it's it's incredibly, you know, well, it's wrong in many different ways. But I'm curious, like how not, you know, not to kind of give away the chapter, no, but like how should leaders, whether they're recruiters or HR leaders who are, you know, hearing that. How should they respond to statements like that? So one of the things I do is try to coach the individual on why they might be thinking that. So would we ever say I'm all for diverse talent? I'm, you say I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good. I'm all for non-diverse talent as long as they're good. Tell me what you mean more about that, Lars. Like, tell me what you mean by as long as they're good. A lot of what we should be doing more in our workplaces is challenging with open questions. I'm not asking you to say this is racist, this is sexist, this is homophobic, unless it clearly is. But sometimes it's like, tell me what you mean by that. Could you help me explain that statement further? And then it gets you to start processing. You're like, huh, what does that mean? You know, one of the stories I do share and reimagine inclusion is I was working with a leader who said, I'm really committed to attracting and developing black talent. This is important to me. We have an internship program. We started with the historical black college and it was just a mess meet. It was a disaster. All the coded language you would imagine, like wasn't a cultural fit to it. So we're not going back to that college. And I said, well, how many interns was it? Three three interns. And so one of the things I say, and I challenge, and I'll pick on my alma mater, Duke University for a second. Would we ever not go back to Duke University if three interns weren't a fit? Would we ever say we're not going to work with Duke University? This is a disaster. And so really challenging our bias that we have in our heads that we sometimes don't say out loud. That's why the book is all about saying the quiet parts out loud. And a lot of the stereotypes that we have about individuals who lived, whose lived experiences are not our own, we carry that with us to the workplace, right? And so if you have never met anyone who is of Indian descent or South Asian descent, and I am the first person you've ever worked with, that's a really high bar for me. Because if I fail at this role, for whatever reason, it doesn't work out and I leave, I always ask, like, would you be more or less reluctant to hire another woman of color? What if it was a white man, similar role? 
right? For all the different reasons, it wasn't a fit, he failed, he moved on. Would you be less reluctant to hire another white man? But if you maybe knew a lot of women of color, then that would never be an issue in the first place, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And I think um, it's just interesting. I think hearing kind of pipeline problems, I mean, even companies who, and I think you talk, tackled this another myth around like, hey, we need to create more opportunities for underrepresented talent. Let's expand the internship program, right? And it's like, they, you know, they, they have this view of like, well, we'll create opportunities at that level and that will allow us to bring more people in and develop them throughout the organization. And then it's as if like, that's a binary choice, right? You could only pick one level, which is just so short-sighted. I know you cover that as well. So I will let, uh, I will let readers learn more about that part. But I, I also want to jump into uh, myth nine, um, which again, I, I, I pick on Florida because I grew up in Florida. So uh, seeing kind of the turn they've taken has been particularly, uh, you know, disheartening for me, but, um, it was around the notion that, you know, these DEI benefits don't benefit me. Um, my voice as a white man doesn't count anymore. And I, I found, I mean, that the title is profound and it makes you think, but I think when you also look at the environment that we're in and some of the backlash, and again, I think Florida, you know, this isn't unique to Florida. Florida is just getting a lot of headlines around like, you know, this notion of critical race theory, uh, you know, curriculum and, you know, we can't make white children feel bad about their, you know, people that or their predecessors. And it's just, it, it's, I don't understand the logic in that it's, it's based so much in fragility, but I would just love to get your perspective on that. Cause I imagine that, you know, when you see some of the particularly white backlash to DEIB programs, you know, some of it is rooted in that. And so I'd love to just get your perspective on that a little bit. I think there's two sides to every story. So I'll start with white men who feel like they're being shamed, demonized, blamed in our workplaces. Many have expressed that to me. I'm not in the business of doing that. I do think when there are headlines like a Harvey Weinstein, a Matt Lauer, Les Munoz, those are men who deserve to move on and deserve to seek redemption elsewhere. And really just understanding that in our workplaces, I do think majority of the time people have really good intent and the impact doesn't land the way it should. So it's also not helpful if we can't be kind and compassionate. So if you, as a white man who I'm working with, ask me a question and I'm like, Lars, I can't believe you don't know that. Like, why are you asking me that? That kind of breaks the psychological safety. You're likely not going to ask it again. That doesn't mean that you can't, I'm not saying that someone can continue to cause harm and there's no repercussions. I'm just saying like, if someone makes a mistake, at least me as an individual, I'm going to try to show up with kindness and compassion, accept the apology and see if they'll show up, do better and be better. So there's that part of the equation. And I think for white men, when the pie grows, it grows for all of us. And particularly for many white men who are leading organizations, I always ask them like, what do you want your legacy to be? How do you want this company and organization and team to look different than when you started? And I think many of them think about that and think, wow, like if I could be sponsoring more women of color to get into exec teams, like I shine, you shine. That's a part of their leadership. That also makes them look good. And for anyone leaning business right now, it's tough. And we just talked about that. There's, you know, anyone who tells me there's no growth to be had, you're looking in the wrong places. And so you think about... If you were a white man leading business today, there's huge opportunity for you to be a champion of this work. And you also should have a seat at the table and also think about, we all have privilege, right? I know privilege is a loaded word, but we all have privilege. For me, race and gender have not been points of privilege, but I've had privilege in many other ways. And so I think about like, how can I use my privilege to help other people? 
And so that's what I hope that white men will think, well, what could I do to help? Like from the place of privilege of the things that I might have that other people might not have access to. What I think is, I mean, you mentioned privilege just as an example, like so many of these terms, like if you just educate yourself on what they mean, you will understand them and it will allow you to have a different conversation about these topics. Um, and I think that, you know, some people who have not done the work, they hear a term like privilege and they're like, well, I, you know, grew up poor and I had a heart and like, sure, I'm white, but I had to overcome all that. Well, sure you did. But if you really understood the definition of privilege, you would realize that you still had things that you inherently benefited just by who you are. You had those difficulties you had to overcome as well. We're not diminishing that. But so I think it's part of it is just understanding you know, some of the terms and the concepts and the principles behind it. And I think when you get there, you can have a very different conversation about your role in all of this. And again, I'm speaking to white males particularly uh, and, you know, white people in general. But I think that that is that can be a turning point if you just kind of just take take a step back and really just do some education and understanding. It allows you to view this in a very different way. Absolutely. I love that. The other thing I would add is, as you were talking about Florida, Florida, as you said, is getting a lot of the heat, but it's not the only community that is experiencing what's happening in Florida. And it, I think it makes me really sad when we live in such a polarized world, when we know really negative things will get a lot of clicks on social media. I ask people to not fall into the trap of embracing that fear, because sometimes when it's an experience that you don't understand and you haven't lived, it's easier to other it and to say, that's anti-woke, that is political, that is, you know, all the labels that you see. And it's like, well, no, let's stop. Like, you know, when I have leaders, for instance, Lars say to me, I don't know if I should talk about that. That's really political. And I will coach them to say, well, isn't it through the lens of privilege that we see that? So for example, Black Lives Matter, anti-Asian hate crimes, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, anti-LGBTQ legislation. I don't think anyone who belongs to any of those historically marginalized communities would say that's political. That's a human rights issue. That's life and death. And so if you can take the moment just to stop and think, oh, well, maybe it's not political. Maybe it's just about protecting individuals. And then all of a sudden your lens changes. But it's easy when I don't know that experience for me to label that because it's just the fear that I'm like, let me just put it over there. Yeah. So I don't have to deal with it. Well, I think you're right too. Because when you think about the framing of those things as political, I mean, from my vantage point, like it seems like it's often those in power who are most often white men who are framing those things as political. I'm certainly not exclusively, but because it, because it is an experience other than their own, they don't understand it. They don't. And again, I agree with you completely. It's a human rights issue, but I think that they have a hard time sometimes seeing it that way. And if we could just kind of get them to maybe reframe that in their mind, they're able to look at it in a very different way and kind of have more compassion and understanding and even curiosity about lived experiences other than their own. Absolutely. Um, so, and I, go back every year to the trust barometer survey that's put out by Edelman, which is one of the world's largest communications firms. And like many individuals feel like whether you're, however you identify politically, that government is failing us. And when government is failing us, it's an opportunity for businesses to step up. It's a huge opportunity and there's still trust in businesses. And so to anyone, HR leaders, practitioners, leaders listening, like you have a big opportunity. It's a big moment right now to stop that fear. Yeah. 
No, I like that. And, uh, and again, I think there's so many great lessons, uh, in the book. So if you're watching or listening, you need to get your hands on this book in October when it comes out. And if you're not a subscriber already to Brown Table Talk, fix that as well, because you're going to get some great, uh, information and stories, uh, in both of those assets. So Mina, I, I appreciate the work you're doing in the space. Uh, I appreciate your voice and I appreciate your leadership and I appreciate you making time to join me on the podcast. Thank you so much. It was an honor. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Lars. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Redefining Work. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, and more, be sure to check out amplifytalent.com slash podcast. And if you dig this podcast, I strongly encourage you to share it with your CEO, leadership team, and friends to help others discover it. And if you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on Spotify or Apple or wherever your preferred podcast delivery vehicle is. We'll see you next episode.